Kmart shoppers, stop by the men's department where a wide assortment of sweaters and shaker knits, cottons, and jacquards are available in the newest colors and styles. Our fleece tops and pants for men's and boys are made in the USA and are available in a rainbow of colors at a low Kmart price. We now know what happened to Jacob Wetterling, but the whereabouts of dozens of other Minnesota children still remain a mystery. 19-year-old Susan Swedell disappeared from Lake Elmo 29 years ago this week. This has never been a closed case. It's been a nightmare. It was a snowy night, only about a 15-minute ride. It's just like she fell off the face of the earth. There, there isn't a day that goes by that, that they don't think about Susan. And... I, I think in Susan's case, somebody knows something. Welcome to the Still Missing Podcast. I'm your host, Kara Thanert. I was sitting at my desk at work on my lunch break, Googling all sorts of varieties of search terms to try to figure out where the Kmart that Susan had worked at had been located. It sounds super simple, right? To find a Kmart, but it's not as easy as it sounds. Not when the Kmart doesn't exist anymore and hasn't for many years. I'd called various properties I thought it may have been, spoke to leasing managers, but just couldn't nail it down. I even asked my mom as we had lived in the area, but no luck. So there I was at my desk, eating popcorn, Googling Kmart, when I looked down at my phone and hit the home button. I'd had it on silent, but then I saw it. The voicemail and the iPhone contact listed, Detective Jesse Kurtz. You heard the voicemail I got from him, and then I called him back. But if she was going to meet somebody just for a short period of time, she wanted to look her best to do so, which in my opinion means that she had to have, to have some kind of communication with this individual sometime that day or the day before so she could uh, bring the right clothes to her quicker to uh, accommodate his request or her desire, one of the two, I don't know. So how does that fit with the... Which, that made sense to me, but then there was the, I'd read that there was some car trouble that seemed to be intentional because there was a loose car part. I think it said there was a pet cock that was loosened. How does that fit with that theory? Well, uh, you can look at that in several different ways. Um, that's not an easy thing to come loose. In fact, I've never even heard of it, you know. Uh, it's something that had been just done to the vehicle or whatever. Somebody could have forgot to tighten it or, or even tighten it enough. Um, it's on the bottom of the radiator. Obviously, they allow for complete flow and evacuation of the uh, uh, fluids inside. And so she goes from work halfway home, in fact, she's almost home, pulls into the gas station and says she's having vehicle trouble. And then she disappears. We find her vehicle. I remember looking at it that night after we found it, and it was you know, covered with snow. Where did you guys And go? mother, it was at a gas station on, on County Road 15 and uh, Highway 5, which is really in Baytown, but it's also it's called like Yomo. So anyways, the mother picked up the car that next day, and she's having some problems with it, so she took it to a mechanic, and the mechanic said that the reason it was overheating, and that is because all the fluids had been drained out of it. 
And I am assuming, again, assuming, or I'm suspicious, but put it that way. I don't like to assume too much, but that somebody tinkered with that in an effort to, you know, raise some concerns with Susan uh, and make her pull over, or it, it might have been right when she left work, Kmart. She goes out in the lot. I'm just surmising this now that it's quite possible she could have went out in that parking lot to meet whoever she was going to meet and dress up for. He looks on the ground and says, well, you know, you've got a leak, a bad leak on the vehicle. And she says, oh, my, whatever. And he says, look at the, you know, I'll follow you home in case you've got problems. And so in other words, he's out of the parking lot, follows her home. She pulls over. He says, okay, just pull in here to this gas station. They pull into the gas station. He says, i got to fill up my car. Fills up his car. Um, she asks, in the meantime, the attendant, you mind if I leave my car here? I'm having some problems. And the attendant says, no, go ahead. Just pull it over to the side. And the attendant last recalls seeing her getting in the car with this guy that was uh, by the pumps, whether he was filling up or what. She didn't mention that, just that he was by the pumps. I see. So do you think, so I see, so you think that the person whom she was dressing up for essentially is the same person whose car she got into? Because that was confusing to me. I was like, I couldn't get a theory in my mind of how that would have lined up based on the car trouble and her not obviously knowing that her car was tampered with. But you think that perhaps after work, she went out to her car and maybe he was out there. She expected to meet somebody. There's no doubt about that. And, 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 uh, her mother said that she called just before she left work and said that she was on her way home. Um, they watch a movie, which at that time, mom said that was pretty untypical, you know, of her to do something like that, to call. And so might have been doing this covering her butt to say that I'm going to be a little bit later than coming home. So don't worry about me, but I am coming home. Because if she said that, you know, I'm going to do this or do that first, mom would ask a lot of questions and that she didn't want to answer. And, and again, that's that's an assumption. I don't know that, but it, it's it's plausible, very plausible. So we have a narrative now. We don't know, and Jesse doesn't know if it is true, but it is a narrative, and it does make sense of the facts that we have so far. I was also curious to know Jesse's thoughts about what happened in the days after the disappearance. And then, of course, mom comes up to me, uh, finds me on the street. It was like only four days later and says, uh, Susan was home. She said, I, what do you mean she was home? She said, well, uh, the pantsuit that she was wearing or something, was, and I found that underneath the bed. It was, you know, we come home and somebody had been in the house. They had been eating. Somebody had smoked a cigarette and, because it could smell smoke. And, and they found the, the pantsuit that she had been wearing? Well, that's what they say. They found they think that they found the pantsuit that she was wearing underneath the bed, Susan's bed. And so what do you think all that not. means? Well, it could mean a couple of things. It could mean that uh, whoever did this, uh, you know, saw her last, decided that you know he knew a little bit about the family and where this key was hidden underneath this floor mat. Just brought her clothes in and threw them under the bed and smoked a cigarette and had something to eat and, and then left. And, or it could be just BS and we just, mom don't know what happened. You know, this is this is the information I got back in the day. So I, I think this is the most reliable information, you know, not interviews that have happened since then. And Sure, it's like the original information. Yeah, the yeah. original information is 
expression of the mind. And if, and I do want to qualify this with if, but if that narrative from Jesse is true, and the information from Susan's mother is true, it's possible, quite possible, that we just learned something about the abductor. It sounds like it's someone she knew in some capacity, or at least was intending to meet, someone who had some handy skills as a mechanic, possibly someone who smoked, and someone who knew the location of the spare key at the Swaddell home. This is important information, or it's at least our first step towards a plausible hypothetical narrative for what happened. What kinds of things during those first months or weeks and months, what kinds of things were happening with the investigation? Again, I wasn't privy to most of that because I was still, you know, pumping the roads or humping the roads uh, as a deputy on the street. But there was a, there were alerts that were put out, you know, missing girl, missing persons, and general inquiries. We used to call them uh, computer messages or teletypes or that would go out to different jurisdictions around the United States you know, regarding her, were, you know, being missing. I, I don't know how far they really went around the United States. I think that that took a while because back then there was just little of that stuff going around. It was just terrible. That's that's what I tried to, and I'm still trying to get involved in, the, in my efforts with what I'm doing now, with trying to get Susan's case back in the, the limelight. Way back in the day again, after I got promoted to sergeant and detective sergeant, um, I reopened the case and gave it every effort I could possibly give it. You know, I went all over places, you know, interviewing people. And, but now nothing is being done. The the sheriff has given me his blessings with Washington County, and he's going to help us do whatever we need to do in support. And is that and where the case currently the resides? Yes, it's, it resides with Washington County Sheriff's Office. And it always will be. Well, I shouldn't, um, the, the case was given to BCA, the State Crime Bureau, and, and they're, they're dealing with it, and I don't know what they're doing with it. I don't think the Swedells do either. They said they've, they've inquired a couple of times, and they've always been told, well, it's an open case, we can't tell you anything. Well, yes, that's, that's true. I, I agree with that. It's a little, you know, a little harsh. But anything I've been told or know uh, about the case, I, I share with the Swedells because they deserve that information. Um, as long as it's not that, you know, I'm going to uh, uh, work, work bad against us and adversely against finding interesting people or persons of interest, I should say. Did the most recent push to bring her case back to the spotlight and all the efforts that you more recently made. What spurred that on? Is that because of the Jacob Wetterling case and you guys, you and the Swedells, feel that now is the perfect time to you know, make a push and push on people? Any opportunity we can get, I can get to, to have somebody you know, sit up and take notice. That's what I'm going to do. That's what I've been trying to do. You know, I tried it 20 years ago and I've tried it periodically between that after I retired it. I retired after a 30-year career and became a, a private detective. During that time, I still have worked on the Swedell case. I've never, you know, I just keep up on everything that I hear and, and look at possibilities of, of, of people of interest. I've read several books on people that 
have been apprehended, incarcerated uh, for the same similar, you know, uh, abducting people, killing them in their uh, MO of doing so, and just trying to correlate that or, you know, with, with this case that I've been working and see if there's a possibility, you know, that they, they fit. And there's been a couple, and I've passed that on to other law enforcement agencies regarding their case. Do you think that this person is still in Minnesota? You know, I don't, I don't know. I still have a couple of people that I've interviewed that are, that are what I would call people of interest that I would love a chance to go back and interview again that I think have been just kind of disregarded. One of my persons of interest is, is still in Minnesota. So do you think, I know you don't know the answer to this, but do you think the person who did this is still alive? Well, <laughs> as far as the, the people I would love a chance to, to talk to again or take out in the back alley, yeah, you know, I, I know they're still around. And are you able to, from your position, you can't interview those people any longer because they probably won't want to talk to you? They wouldn't want to talk to me. Yeah, I could go down and talk to them as a private detective. I mean, I, you know, but where am I going to get the, the funds to do that? I mean, I'd love to go down and milk somebody for some information uh, in Arizona again and get them to fess up. You know, if I knew one of them, you know, was sick and I'd follow up on that, but Somebody had a bad case of cancer or something like that. Maybe you can plead to the sympathy. You know, you're, you're gone anyways. Let's let's get this information out there. Let's help with, with these people with their with their uh, needs in life. And and people are sympathetic to that, especially on their deathbed when they're trying to make good with God. If you know what I mean. Those may have seemed like silly questions to ask. To ask him if he thinks the abductor is in Minnesota or still alive. For obvious reasons, those answers are unknown. Like the rest of us, he doesn't know. But I just couldn't help but ask his thoughts. Those questions cross my mind all the time. That somewhere out there, possibly not far from us, could this guy be living, breathing, going about his daily life? It really sounds like you've never given up on this case. You know, but maybe... Oh, not even close. You know, not only are we looking for a missing person. We're also looking for a murderer. If these people are missing and they haven't come around for a this long a time, you know, the odds are that they are deceased. And it's not because they fell into a gutter or a cave or anything like that. It's because, you know, somebody abducted them and killed them. So in other words, we got a murderer out there, a serial killer. They're all over the place. I was curious to know more about some of the things the detective had alluded to throughout our call. Things like when he had mentioned he had reopened the case at one point, when he was in a position where he could. Why had anyone before him ever closed the case? And he posed the question himself, what is the Minnesota BCA really doing? I would agree with him, it does seem harsh that they won't give the Swedells much information. But even more than being harsh, I'm just wondering how, at this point, it can even make logical sense to be so secretive. I'm no expert, but it seems at this point, one of the main things hindering resolution to the case is how silent it is, how no information has been shared, how no one knows about it. I've put a lot of thought about how this case could possibly be solved, considering how old it is and how quiet it is. I want to share with you what I think, how I think this case could be solved. The world of forensics has so profoundly and rapidly progressed in the past 30 years. 
The way modern cases are solved, the way that they interlock legal procedure, science, math, standards for record keeping, protocols for maintaining the integrity of evidence, the way these things can be pulled together, closing in on and wrapping tightly around a case to solve a crime and bring justice. It's really rather incredible in those instances in modern time when everything works together as it should. But for Susan's case, we don't have any of that. I'm not really completely sure what evidence the BCA or the Sheriff's Department does have. But after 30 years, without a resolution to the case, my gut tells me it can't be much. They wouldn't be sitting on some smoking gun this whole time, would they? I wonder to myself, did they collect a dirty dish from that time when Susan's family reported someone had been in their house? Did they fingerprint the door handle, collect the pantsuit that was balled up under the bed? Did they search the premise for cigarette buds? I'm not sure. It was a different time. I've also read that initially, law enforcement did not take Susan's disappearance seriously, that they thought she had ran away. But I've started to realize lately that the way forward, at least for me, isn't to dwell on the past through a negative lens. I'm not going to sit here and try to point fingers at who didn't do their job. And that's not to suggest I don't think we should learn from the past, that people need to be held accountable, or that we shouldn't use the past to inform the future. But rather, what I'm saying is, the story I'm here to tell isn't the one that evaluates and pulls apart the past 30 years to determine what mistakes were made such that this case hasn't been solved. I believe the way this case can be solved is by focusing on what we do have. We need to review the facts available and ask as many questions about them as possible, then find as many answers to those questions as we can. We need more information about Susan's life prior to her disappearance. Where was she going? Who was she talking with? What was she doing? Because the person who abducted her was in her life in some way, shape, or form, even if only briefly. So if we can go back, go back into Susan's life, I believe he'll be there, hiding, quiet, knowing all these years he's stolen someone's life. But rarely, if ever, does silence uncover the truth. So for that reason, solving Susan's case will also require two other very important things. Two things I cannot accomplish alone. It will require people to speak up and share what they know and it will require other people to share Susan's story. We have to get Susan's case out there, as much information as possible, in front of as many people as we can. And with social media, we have the tools to do that ourselves. And for all those reasons I just listed, those reasons are why I've been trying to clear up simple facts and create a basic narrative as to what may have happened. Those reasons are why I've been obsessed with the little things, like how long shifts at Kmart were back in 1988 where her car was parked in the parking lot, and where the Kmart was even located. Which, by the way, I forgot to mention, I asked Jesse where the Kmart was. Here was his reply. It's off Highway 36. It's, it's part of the uh, Anderson Corporation now. I see. It's, uh, it's a long long building. They've, they've remodeled it and blah, blah. It's, 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 if you go and find the St. Croix Bowl, is that what's called Paul of the St. Croix Bowl? Yeah, St. Croix Bowl is a bowling alley. And if you're standing in front of that place, you look to your left, and that's the whole parking lot there. You are. 
Finally, I had some clues as to where this mysterious ghost of a Kmart was. Enough clues so I knew I could probably find it. If you're wondering, why didn't I just type it into Google Maps? Try typing those things in that Jesse said and see the possibilities. So I took a wrong turn, turned out not to be the Anderson Corporation, turned out to be the Washington County Government Center, the Washington County Sheriff's Department, the courthouse, crossing back over Highway 36. And I do see a pretty nondescript department store-ish looking long um, one level type of building. There's really no sign I can find. I'm gonna go take a look. Then I found it. Like he said, it's now the Anderson Corporation. So it looks long, nondescript, kind of faceless, the way you imagine a, you know, a typical Walmart, Kmart, department store style building. You can almost imagine the Kmart logo just slapped up there on top. But I'm going to go ahead and drive to the gas station now, see, you know, how long it takes. I left Kmart and headed east along the frontage road, paralleling Highway 36. I don't know this, but I'm guessing in heavy snow at 19, she likely would have taken the frontage road. About five minutes later, I reached Stillwater Boulevard and took a left toward the gas station. This is the kind of area where the street lights are, they're hung from ropes and they're not actually major structures. There's some open fields, lots of pine trees. All right, it's 1.04 p.m. and we're passing the Washington County Fairgrounds. The road curves here a bit and there it is, the gas station. The gas station is currently a holiday. There's actually two banks of stations where you can fuel up. It's very large, right on the corner. Can you imagine what Susan was thinking on her way to the gas station when she pulled in and parked? I can't really, not yet, because I don't understand exactly why she ended up there, whether it was an intentional stop or an unexpected one. But I can tell you what she definitely was not thinking. She was not thinking that she would never see her mom again. She was not thinking she would never see her sister again. She wasn't thinking she'd never go home. How many times do we all get in our car at point A, stop for gas, and assume we will make it to point B? But whether home for Susan was point B, C, D, or E, it doesn't really matter. She never made it there. Not this time. She didn't make it home. Hey guys, if you know anything about the disappearance of Susan Swaddell or anything that could be relevant, please speak up and contact the Washington County Sheriff Department's tip line at 651-430-7850. Additionally, please help get Susan's story out there by going to facebook.com slash stillmissingpodcast and share the post with Susan's photo in it. Next time on Still Missing. That's a possibility, is it? Do I believe it? No, I don't believe it. Is he still suspicious to you? Somebody out there knows what happened to Susan. Thank you for listening to Still Missing. If you like what you hear, don't forget to go to iTunes and rate and review our podcast. See you next time.